0: attorneys with the animal legal defense fund are representing justice now the animal legal defense fund helped come up with the california bill the animal legal defense fund
1: the animal legal defense fund animal legal defense fund Fund ranks the best and worst states for animal protection laws
0: the way our laws are currently written it's not viewing this crime as seriously as it should be
1: the animal legal defense fund is suing petland lawyer for the animal legal defense fund says they are in negotiation and welcome to the first episode of the Animal Amicus podcast. I'm Nicole Pilata, Senior Policy Program Manager for the Animal Legal Defense Fund. I have a PhD in sociology with a concentration in animal studies. And my co-host is
0: David Rosengard. And I am the managing attorney in the Animal Legal Defense Fund's criminal justice program. Um, in addition to being a lawyer with the requisite J.D., I have an LLM, uh, which is the, the post-doctorate level law degree in animal law. We are delighted that you're joining us for our podcast. And uh, the the purpose of this podcast is for us to be able to dig into some of the stories behind the law. The reasons why animal law has grown into the convoluted tangle that it is. And also for us to start unwinding some of that and making it sensible to everyone listening. So... Throughout the podcast, we'll be sharing with you stories of animals that are impacted by the law, animals and humans who have given rise to new laws and legal developments on the behalf of animals, and digging into some of the detail about how animal law works and how it might work in the future, how you can change it, how you can try to make things different and better. Uh, In particular, this season is going to be All animal crime, all the time. We'll be talking about where criminal law and animal law intersect, so that will include crimes committed against animals, crimes committed ostensibly on behalf of animals, what to do in the face of animal cruelty, how we as a society should respond to that, what kind of sentences should be implicated by animal crimes, and... We're excited for you to join us for this. Animal cr- cruelty is an issue that gets a lot of attention, that we think a lot about, although perhaps not as much as we should in society, but it's one about which there's a lot of misunderstanding. So we are excited that you're joining us for this season, which you can binge all at once since we're releasing it all at the same time. Uh, but before we get into the rest of the season, we're going to start with a very particular story in a very particular case.
1: Yes. Thank you for that intro, David, and welcome listeners. We are very excited to have you joining us. Um, Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the case that sparked the movement for courtroom animal advocate program laws, or CAP laws for short. And the first of these was Desmond's Law, which passed in Connecticut in 2016. And we're going to take a look at Desmond's case and the aftermath that led to the passage of this landmark law. But first, David, I know you know a lot about cap laws and you do a ton of work on them. I was wondering if you could maybe give us a brief overview of what cap laws are.
0: Absolutely. Cap laws really come out of something fundamental to the way our Criminal justice system, in fact, the entirety of our justice system works, which is our whole legal system in the United States and going back beyond that to British common law is premised on the idea that we get the best truth. We get the best results when we put two interested parties in a courtroom and have them fight it out those interested parties are going to be motivated to bring the strongest arguments to bear, to bring the best evidence forward, and therefore the judge or the jury, whoever's hearing the case, will get the best perspective and be able to give us the best answer. And so in modern criminal law in the United States, what often happens is we have the state, the prosecutor, and the Accused, the defendant, and those are two parties fighting it out in the courtroom. But increasingly, there's a realization within criminal law that those aren't the only two parties involved, that victims are left out of that formula. We can get into a whole discussion about how victim rights law develops and where it comes from historically. I would be all about that. But that might be a bit of a tangent at this moment. So instead, I'm simply going to shortcut that by saying, In a courtroom, in a criminal courtroom, the government's role is not to advocate for the victim. The defense's role is not to advocate for the victim. The government, the prosecution, is arguing for the community. They're arguing for conviction. The defense attorney is arguing for that accused individual, the defendant. They're arguing for a not guilty verdict. They're arguing to mitigate sentences. They're arguing for whatever advances their client's interests. And there isn't anyone in that room whose job it is to represent the interests of victims. Now, human victims have addressed this in large part through the growth of victim rights law, through the presence of victim rights attorneys, victim rights laws, uh, the ability to address the court or interact with the other parties in various ways. But animals don't necessarily get this. And that's a challenge because animal cruelty cases are incredibly complex. We're dealing with scenarios that unite the kind of complex evidentiary and testimonial issues that we see typically associated with homicides or sexual abuse of very young pre-verbal children with crimes that tend to be misdemeanors or low-level felonies. And so we end up with really complex case needs, really unique laws that are often obscure to the judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys that are trying to work with them, and a judicial economy that doesn't really incentivize people figuring out what to do about those cases. Uh, And so we see scenarios where the needs of animal victims can fall through the cracks. One way to address that is making sure that there is an option for court for for attorneys to be in that courtroom on behalf of the animal victim. And that's what cap laws do. In short, cap laws allow judges the option to appoint a volunteer attorney or a supervised volunteer law student not to argue for conviction, not to argue for a not guilty verdict, but simply to represent what would be in the animal's interests. And there's precedent for this even before these laws started passing. Uh, If we go back to what is one of my favorite case titles in the entirety of American law, the United (laughs) States government versus approximately 53 pit bulldogs. And you will see this case title rendered in various ways. Sometimes pit bull is one word. Sometimes bulldog is one word. Sometimes they tack an E onto the end of bulldog. Like it was old school. Bulldog Really? <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it all those ways. It's like when people put an E on the end of shop. They spell shop with two P's and an E. Like now uh-huh. it's all very Renaissance old school. I've seen <laughs> that happen with the pit bulls in this case. These were not dogs for the Renaissance. These were dogs um, that were scooped up as part of what in popular culture is known as the Michael Vick dog fighting case. Uh and that was a case that didn't that is largely separate from U.S. versus 53 pit bull dogs. In the Michael Vick dogfighting case, Vick and some of his compatriots, but it's largely focused on Vick because he was the person who was a celebrity at the time the case happened, um, were apprehended in the process of running a dogfighting ring. Uh, They ended up pleading guilty to various charges. And um, as part of that guilty plea, they surrendered the dogs to the federal government as well as a pretty substantial pile of money for the dog's care while the government had responsibility for them. And it was at this point that the American federal government looked around and said, now we are the owners of 53 ex-fighting dogs. What do we do? And up until this point in time, the default assumption in America and around the world, in fact, was that fighting dogs were irrevocably tainted that they were collaborators in their own abuse, that they really enjoyed fighting, that they were vicious, and that you couldn't do anything for them. And so the best thing to do was just to kill them. But in this case, well, first, it was a federal court. And the federal courts have a lot more time and resources than state courts, which is usually where these cases end up. Uh, And also, it's a federal court that had this pool of money from the plea deal. So the federal judge said, before we euthanize these dogs, I'm going to appoint an attorney to try to figure out what each of these dogs actually need. Do they need to be euthanized or is there something else that would be good for them? Uh, and so he appointed uh, Professor Rebecca Huss, who's an animal law, pr- law professor, to act as the guardian slash special master for the approximately 53 pit bull dogs. Uh, and that's simply a fancy term for someone who answers to the judge and is appointed by the judge to do a specific task. And her task in this case was figure out who can do an assessment on these dogs, figure out what they need, and come back and represent that to the court. And that's what she did. And as a result of that, uh, one of those dogs, if memory serves, was euthanized for behavioral reasons. The dog was just too mentally and emotionally damaged to live a happy or safe life. Two of the dogs were euthanized for physical reasons. They were... Too physically damaged to live lives free of pain, uh, and the other you know, forty nine fifty dogs went for, went on to live happy dog lives. Some of them uh, lived the rest of their lives in specific rescues because they couldn 't go out and just live in family homes in a way that would be good for them and others. Some dogs did live in family homes, some became therapy dogs. They did a lot of great doggy stuff, and you could actually find a number of really heart-moving documentaries about these dogs if you if you Google around for, like, Vic dogs. Um, but this not only changed the narrative for what you do with fighting dogs around the world, changed it from a you euthanize them because they're collaborators into a you rehabilitate them because they're victims sort of narrative, but it also really set the mold for the idea that you could, in fact, have attorneys doing work for animal victims, not as part of the prosecution, not as part of the defense, and it wouldn't cause problems for the judicial system. It really proved that if the federal court could do this, well, any court could do it. Uh, and that's, an, that's a concept that's been sort of in the back of a lot of people's heads for a while since then. It took a number of years for anything to come of that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's such a great way to tee this up. And that case is so landmark. And I like that you mentioned the heartwarming videos. I encourage people to seek those out. I know that I personally am always interested in seeing heartwarming videos in our field.
0: Yeah. And as you're listening to the podcast this season, this season in particular, but probably all the seasons,
1: Mm. if
0: you ever come off of an episode and you're like, oh, that was some dark business. David, Nicole, what are you doing? Why have you brought me down? Cue up some heartwarming animal videos. Uh, We, in our line of work, we do a lot of contact with horrible things happening to animals. And I think that we both really get a lot out of being able to spend time with our own animal friends, being able to watch videos of animals, living good lives. I suggest that if you're having a reaction to some of the awful stuff we'll be talking about this season, do that as well. Reach out to your own animals, your friends' animals. Take a look at Happy Animals online. There are a lot of animals that come out of bad situations that live great lives. And that's part of what the movement to get animals and their needs recognized by the law is all about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And like, there's no shortage of bad news. I think it's good to be intentional about seeking out the victories and the happy endings and to um, to focus on those to help ameliorate some of the the psychic wounds that one can experience being involved in this work. Um I also wanted to mention that Rebecca Huss actually has a a law review article that she wrote called Lessons Learned Acting as Guardian Special Master in the Bad News Kennels case. Um we can I'm sure we can put a link to that in the show notes, but if anyone's interested in in learning more about that, in this article she goes through um, the the case, the Vic case, and her uh, she explains her role as guardian special master and how she made her determinations about each dog's destiny. So um, definitely check that out, anyone who wants to learn more about that. So since this is our first episode and our theme this season is criminal law, I thought it might be helpful to take a brief detour into the past approximately 150 years ago, and give some context about the history of animal cruelty laws, and then we can dive into the specifics of Desmond's case. Does that sound like a plan to you, David?
0: I dig it. Any time we get to go dive into the past <laughs> of cruelty law, I am here <laughs> for it.
1: Excellent. So there were some laws earlier than this, but the start of what would eventually become our modern animal cruelty laws is generally dated to the 1860s and the advocacy of Henry Berg. So Henry Berg is a pretty well-known figure in the early humane movement. He helped draft what's considered the first comprehensive animal cruelty legislation, which was in New York. And he was really good at getting publicity to raise awareness about animal cruelty. He was, by all accounts, a very energetic campaigner. In addition to his work to reform animal cruelty laws, he also helped found the first child protection organization in the US. But a few years before that, In 1866, he founded the ASPCA, which is the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, as most people probably know. Um, But this is a super important milestone because the ASPCA was not only the first animal protection organization in the U.S., but it also had enforcement powers. So before this, there weren't any agencies dedicated to enforcing these fledgling cruelty laws. So around this time, we're also starting to see a shift in societal attitudes about animal protection. But Henry Berg's activism was very much a catalyst. So he had gone to England around this time and was inspired by the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or the RSPCA, which was founded in uh, in the UK in 1824. And the RSPCA is actually the oldest animal protection organization in the world. Henry Berg came back. He was very fired up to improve animal cruelty laws in the US. And he was equally passionate about enforcement because he correctly realized these laws would be ineffective without that crucial piece of someone to enforce them. So a little sidebar, central to all of our discussions in this podcast is going to be the fact that animals are classified as property under the law. This was true historically and it's true today. Now our laws have changed since the 19th century and should also point out that being property does not prevent you from also having rights. There are also ways that our laws treat animals differently from other types of property, cruelty laws being but one example. But it's important to always kind of keep the context of animals' legal status in the back of our minds when we're talking about animal law.
0: We'll try to disambiguate that as we go on. It's going to get confusing, y'all. This is a a pretty complex area. (laughs) And it's also really central to a lot of the animal issues because... Again, as Nicole said, animals are are living creatures. They are also property. So they aren't things. They are beings. They are someone, not something. And yet the law is not always good at recognizing that. The law doesn't have the right labels all the time for animals. And so sometimes they get put in a category where they get treated like things, even though we all know they aren't.
1: Yes, exactly. Even though it's not always the best fit, we see that happen a lot in the law. Um, So with that in mind, pre-ASPCA, pre-Henry Berg, the early cruelty laws were not aimed at protecting animals themselves, but instead they were meant to stop people from harming other people's property, essentially. So the list of animals protected by those early laws was limited to animals who were considered commercially valuable. So this did not include wild animals or even companion animals. So it's kind of interesting, given the way our laws are today, that farmed animals were the main subject of these early cruelty laws. But again, it wasn't to protect them them from suffering. It was to protect their owners from having their property harmed.
0: Right. It wasn't it wasn't don't hurt this cow. It was don't break your neighbor's valuable cow. Uh, don't cost your exactly. neighbor money. Um, and that's, as you're saying, that's a really important distinction, uh, for those of you who like doing deep dives into old animal law, you will absolutely find a few old cases where courts, to their credit, acknowledge that other animals matter or look at animals as creatures that count in and of themselves. So you know, don't don't misunderstand there are those cases out there, but Nicole is absolutely right that the, the dominant belief at the time and the way the law generally worked was just looking at animals as property. Um, and saying we we have cruelty law not because we're concerned about the cruelty part, but because we're concerned about the property damage part.
1: Yeah, exactly. And on along those lines, I wanted to mention one case in Minnesota that highlights sort of where the cruelty laws were generally in the 1860s, which is just before we'd start to see major shifts. So this case is mentioned in an article um, on the emergence of cruelty laws in the 1800s. It's um, from the Animal Legal and Historical Center, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But this is a case that's actually from 1866. A defendant was brought up on charges for shooting a dog under a criminal statute that referenced, quote, every person who shall willfully and maliciously kill, maim, or disfigure any horses, cattle, or other beasts of another person. Unquote. So again, we see even in that snippet, it only refers to animals who are owned. But in this case, um, the court decided to dismiss the charges because a dog could not be considered a beast. So the court said, this is a quote, it seems to me that all animals such as have, in law, no value, were not intended to be included in that general term. The term beasts may well be intended to include asses, mules, sheep, and swine, and perhaps some other domesticated animals, but it would be quite it would be going quite too far to hold that dogs were intended, unquote. So, again, this is really interesting because this is f- kind of flipped in modern times with the structure of our cruelty laws, today generally being more protective of companion animals than farmed animals. But in this case, because dogs, you know, they they were, they were owned, but they weren't considered commercially valuable, so the court basically decides they don't even count as animals or beasts, as they're called in um, this case. Um, so we we could take a whole detour to talk about why this change occurred um, in, in the law where companion animals have sort of an elevated status in terms of their protections. Um, but for these early laws, suffice it to say, a crime was only committed generally if the animal was owned by someone else. So if a person hurt their own animal, that wasn't a crime. If a person hurt a wild animal or a domestic animal who was considered ownerless, that also wasn't a crime.
0: That's right. And the other main area we see cruelty laws in this early period operating is around questions of how society feels. Um, Is cruelty bad for society? Does it squick society out to have to watch cruelty happening? And so we get laws that are really focused on, again, not the animal's experience, but more the experience of people watching the cruelty. laws that focus on are you being cruel to an animal in public? Are you beating a horse in the street, for example?
1: Yes, exactly. So moral turpitude, you know, as you mentioned, the other main goal was to protect society from moral turpitude. And that's basically behavior that violates social norms. But even beyond violating social norms, it's often behavior that's considered depraved or wicked, thought to be bad for, you know, for someone's character, and then sort of hence bad for society. So um, in this case, the primary concern is for the moral state of the human, and again, not the suffering of the animal. So we can see this focus on morality in the fact that cruelty laws These earlier cruelty laws were often found in sections of the criminal code with uh, titles like offenses against chastity, decency, and morality. And so besides cruelty to animals, these laws prohibited a lot of other acts considered morally reprehensible. So just by way of example, New Hampshire's law prohibited adultery, lewdness, fornication, cohabiting, incest, blasphemy, profane swearing, digging up dead bodies, injuring tombs, and cruelty to animals.
0: Oh, it is footloose out there. People are people are <laughs> dancing in the streets. They're probably drinking on Sunday. They're abusing animals. Downfall of civilization, as we know it.
1: Yes, exactly. And um so in Minnesota, cruelty to animals was listed right before a section that prohibited performing labor or attending a dance on the Lord's Day. So we have uh, the main objectives of these early cruelty laws being the protection of private property and the protection of society, but the animals themselves are kind of lost. But, yeah, so do you want to say anything about the – I just like how – oh, I don't know. Maybe this is being too flip. But all these laws about dancing, and that's where the animal cruelty laws are too, and digging up dead bodies. Yeah, there's
0: something there. <laughs> um, like, don't, don't get us wrong. It's – I feel like – Correct me if I'm wrong, I think I can speak for both of us when we say we we are supporting laws that say you don't get to torture animals in the street, you don't get to uh, abuse your neighbor's cow. But there's a big difference between saying don't do that because it damages property, or don't do that because it is disruptive in the same way that dancing on Sunday is disruptive, versus saying don't do it because it's bad for the animal, don't do it because the animal suffers, and we don't think animal suffering is okay. Uh, it's great that those laws were there that could help animals, but mm-hmm. in the law, we really, and particularly in animal law, we really like to look at why the law is there, and if we're trying to get the law to accurately reflect the needs of animals, to have an animal forward lens, and by that I mean, you know, if we can elevate the animal experience to a point where, not where it overwhelms the human experience, but where it's being considered at all, where people realize that animal experience exists and is legally cognizable, our laws should be about more than just, is that animal property? Or does it make people uncomfortable? Does it disrupt society? Is it annoying when people abuse animals? The law should be about, how did that animal feel? Did that animal suffer? do we think it's okay?
1: Yes, exactly. And if
0: you're wondering, isn't it weird that all these animal laws were in the same places as laws about sexual morality and whatnot? If you're wondering, (laughs) does that mean there might be a connection there? Oh, just you wait. We have a whole special episode for you on animals and sex crimes. Continue listening, dear listeners.
1: A very special episode. Um, (laughs) Yes, (laughs) in
0: in best after-school special manner, it's a very (laughs) special episode on animal sex crimes, especially heinous.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so with these early cruelty laws, we have protecting private property, protecting society, protecting people's moral character, but where are the animals? And so this is something that Henry Berg set out to change. And the year that he founded the ASPCA, he also successfully expanded New York's earlier cruelty law. And that, that so just a sidebar, New York was the first state to pass a cruelty law in 1828. But um, this expansion or this revision that happened in uh, 1867, I think it was, um, with that, the main focus of concern finally shifted to the animals themselves. And so New York's revised cruelty law was a big step forward for a few reasons. I'll name just two. First, it removed the limitation that protection was only for animals of commercial value. The law now applied to, quote, any living creature, and it applied regardless of whether the animal was owned. So, you know, those was a big deal considering where the laws were prior to this.
0: Yeah, that's that's a huge deal. And it really begins shifting anti-cruelty law from a property protection law and cruelty as a property crime or cruelty as a disturbing the peace crime, shifting it to anti-cruelty law being about the right of animals not to be subject to unlawful cruelty and making that those laws about the animal experience. And I'm sure that some of you listening are like, wait a minute, did David just say the right of animals to get something? But, 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 animals rights? What does it all mean? Uh, We can get into greater detail on this, but I would suggest that when we're thinking about the way cruelty law works, we recognize that for modern cruelty law, this kind of law that Henry Berg kicked off in the 1800s, as Nicole was talking about, inherent in that shift, the law being about preventing the suffering, preventing cruelty, is also a recognition that that's about the animal experience. And it really is effectively, a legal recognition of of an animal having a right not to be subject to unlawful cruelty. There's a greater debate about what cruelty is lawful and what cruelty is unlawful, what suffering is legally permitted, what suffering is not legally permitted. But by and large, in every state in the country, currently, animals have the right not to be subject to unlawful cruelty. And I know some people are going to be like, I don't like talking about animal rights. I don't think that's a thing. Fight me haters. I'm ready.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and on the other side, I think we have some people who think that cruelty laws don't constitute rights. They're too weak. It's like a whole other Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And that that's a good discussion to have. I mean people will say yeah. people will say cruelty laws don't do enough. They don't do everything that people want and say so, therefore they aren't rights. Mm-hmm. Or people will say cruelty laws aren't rights because the animal themselves doesn't enforce them. Although hold on to that thought for the rest of our episode when we talk about animals having representatives in court who can help them enforce their rights.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: And again, people on the converse will talk about those not being rights, those just being protections that society gives mm-hmm. animals. But with that protection says it is illegal to cause you to experience unlawful cruelty I would argue another way to phrase that is you have the right not to be subject to unlawful cruelty in the same way that Nicole, both you and I have the right not to be subject to unlawful killing. Uh, that's because it's illegal to kill us unlawfully.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, there's a whole, a lot of this gets at sort of uh what are rights there's, there's a whole discourse around that and like some, um, that we won't get into at all, but just to acknowledge that there are differing opinions. Um
0: we can save that for a special bonus episode. What
1: is a right? Nicole
0: and I can grab some people all over the spectrum. We'll just <laughs> we'll all be on the yeah. we'll all be recording soundtracks of us arguing about this.
1: I mean, I think it's very interesting, but it would be very it's a huge uh tangle of like, uh, it would be a very tangled detour if we yes, were to, uh, bounce, start bounding down that path. So we'll just <laughs> stay on, on the subject at hand. Um, but I'm really glad that you said animals right not to be subject to unlawful cruelty because that does tee up the second reason why this expanded New York cruelty law was so important was because in addition to intentional acts of cruelty, anyone who kept an animal now could be held criminally liable for negligent acts. So, you know, we have this sort of right not to be subject to something, but then we also have rights to be provided something. So sort of this was the first time the law imposed affirmative duties to provide care. I mean, these are very minimal. And, you know, certainly even today, I I would argue they don't go far enough. However, this was the first time that the law imposed these affirmative duties to provide things like sufficient food and water. So just sort of baseline. But, uh, we'll talk we talk a little bit about this I think in another episode but the, the framework of cruelty laws generally is like you've got your abuse and you've got your neglect like those kind of two buckets right david is that yeah, you kind of the negligent acts and the i guess I don't know what the word affirmative you're you're doing yeah. something you're you're
0: yeah yeah acts of commission which would be abuse and acts commission of omission, i knew there was neglect. a
1: fancy word for that yeah
0: and and you're <laughs> right this is this is a really Big deal. This is really important because we don't see a lot of laws around neglect for objects, for things. if, If you've got an old car that you want to put up on blocks in your front yard, you can do that. Maybe your neighbor's going to be annoyed. Maybe your HOA has a problem. Maybe there's some sort of public nuisance law, but it's not inherently against the law to let a car rust out it's not against the law to let a table get termites it's not against the law to let things fall apart but it is against the law to let an animal that you have taken responsibility for an animal that you own that you possess that you've put yourself in that position of having responsibility towards to let that animal starve or dehydrate or go without minimum necessary care. And that's that's a huge distinction that really goes to the law recognizing even at this basic level that animals are someone, not something.
1: Definitely. This, so that this was like quite a pivot point because after the this expansion of New York's law again, this was in 1867, other states pretty quickly followed suit in adopting similar legislation. So this was seen, you know, New York kind of set an example and other states followed suit. And a lot of these new laws included the um, provisions allowing for uh, state SPCAs to be created that were modeled after New York's and at, at the, at the state SPCAs uh, had enforcement power. So the, this was, you know, this was an important com- component of that, of those laws
0: yeah, and that state SPCA enforcement power was was pretty common at the time. it wasn't it wasn't as standard as it is now for the government to be responsible for enforcing law. Uh, so mm. there was space at that point in time where particularly for laws where the government didn't consider it a high priority, the government would specifically mm. allow charities to do that legal enforcement work. So SPCAs were often empowered to enforce cruelty law. Um, non-profits, charities devoted to orphans or the elderly might enforce laws related to child abuse or elder neglect and so forth. There are still a few of those laws on the books out there. Um, Ohio, for example, notably, uh, has a law that in theory would allow SPCAs to prosecute uh, child abuse, elder neglect, and animal cruelty. Uh, in practice, In theory? <laughs> well, in practice, it allows the SPCAs to prosecute uh, misdemeanor animal cruelty i don't believe mm-hmm. spcas in ohio are actively uh taking it upon themselves to prosecute elder abuse or child abuse which is probably okay um i think we recognize at this mm-hmm. point in american history that there are differences between elder abuse child abuse and animal neglect there are connections which we will also be talking about in future mm-hmm. episodes but it's okay for there to be different specialists dealing with those different things uh and again, a lot of this is sort of historically kicked off by the work of Henry Berg, who I'm going to make the case for being someone in severe need of a you know, period piece action movie treatment. Henry Berg is oh, kind yes. of a badass,
1: y'all. I'm surprised that hasn't
0: happened yet. I am too. He's, <laughs> he's got this great narrative where, as he said, he... He goes abroad. He witnesses horrors of war. He sees the SPCA, the Royal SPCA in in the UK. He comes back inspired and he keeps doing this his whole life. People make fun of him. They're like, ah, he's the horse lawyer. There are cartoons Mm -hmm. about him in the local press and he just keeps going and he gets it done. And he's not just making these arguments in political circles, in legal circles. He's actually on the ground, like, doing action movie stuff, there's this really <laughs> famous dogfighting pit um, that he ends up breaking up. Uh, it's a dogfighting pit that was run by organized crime in New York at the time, um, associated with the, the Dead Rabbits Gang, for those of you that are into organized crime history. And Henry Berg, at the age of 57, apparently organizes the police to like shut this ring down once and for all. Reading news stories from the time, there are apparently conflicting narratives of how this goes down. In some of them, he like shows up in disguise and sneaks into the crowd, and then like uncovers a lantern to give the police the signal to like begin the raid. In other versions I've read, he actually like busts in through a window. Uh, either way, I think there's a lot wow. for Hollywood to work with, and they should get on it. It would be great. But if they do a subplot about how Henry Berg's involved with. The beginning of child protection law in the United States. They need to remember that he was a bit player in that. It was actually the majority of the work was done by, by a, a woman who was a, a missionary and social worker at the time who sort of organized the whole campaign uh, around child protection and was able to hook Henry Berg in because he had a legal apparatus um, he had lawyers who worked for the SPCA and he basically lent them out to her for child protection. He gets a lot of credit for it as if he just did it by himself. He didn't. But he did get his his people to help out. And his investigators.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. So oftentimes in especially modern stories, now that we've gotten, you know, years after the fact, Henry Berg gets like unilateral credit for creating i
1: want to know i did say helped create
0: so yeah oh yeah no no you're you're down with it You've i had to think it.
1: back i was like did i say it, right? no, no. No. you're, you're fine <laughs> yeah. this is this
0: is not about you this is about like other things i've read and people like in addition to being a badass that shut down dog fighting raising took on organized crime and caught and changed animal protection law he also single-handedly saved this horribly abused <laughs> girl mary ellen um and also oh, yes, created mary animal Allen. protection law it didn't go down quite that way uh, he was certainly helpful, but the the bulk of the credit for this sea change in child protection law and saving the particular abused child, in this case, Mary Ellen, goes to a, a missionary and social worker named Etta Angel Wheeler. Um, and she's the person who became aware that Mary Ellen was being horribly neglected and abused by her family. She figured out that something had to be done. Where Henry Berg got involved is she ended up connecting with Henry Berg, um, and he lent her both his cruelty investigators, who had training to do undercover work, trying to figure out what was happening for animals. He lent them out to her to use to get evidence about the neglect this girl was suffering. And then after they did that, Henry Berg lent the SPCA's attorney to Etta Wheeler and to Mary Ellen so the attorney could represent her in the legal proceedings, separating her from her family, getting her justice, keeping her safe. Um, and in fact, Mary Ellen went on to lead uh, what, by all reports, was a very a very healthy adult life and uh, named one of her children after Etta Wheeler because that was such a significant change in the way the law worked and such a significant difference specifically for the life of course of Mary Ellen there's some great material out there Uh, we can stick some of the show notes but uh, inevitably we'd clearly because a lot of movie producers are listening to us right now um, when you make the (laughs) great action movie biopic of Henry Berg remember to put um, Etta Wheeler in there and make her just as badass because she was pretty cool
1: too God the movie's even better now it is I have a question. So I didn't know that. I didn't know that about him breaking up that, the dogfighting ring and the organized crime busting. Have you seen the 17 and a half hour documentary called New York (laughs) by Ken Burns' brother, Uh, Rick Burns?
0: (laughs) I, apparently I should.
1: Well, my boyfriend and I started watching it a few months ago, and we sort of petered out. We're like a few hours in maybe more than a few hours, nowhere near we're still kind of toward the beginning. It's very epic and very long but i'm wonder I was wondering if you'd seen it because now I'm wondering. Could this be in the documentary? I don't know. Maybe you have to make sure is. that we uh, continue watching. <laughs> it, it <definitely, laughs> I don't
0: think we got there. If you, I, I may be saying this from my animal, pers- animal law perspective, in which case yeah, all the animal cases stand there, out. It's
1: so important. <laughs> but,
0: but I feel like it does say something about organized crime in New York, and specifically about how organized crime is changing from being intermeshed with politics and the political machine to being a... Extra legal, outside the law activity. Um, you know, Kit Burns, who ran this dogfighting bar, um, was really hooked into the political mechanisms of New York. And so, the fact that Henry Berg arrested him, seized his animals, um, mm-hmm. was a really big deal, uh, and certainly mm. generated a lot of attention at the time because it wasn't just about animal cruelty. It wasn't just about Henry Berg saying. These dogfights are wrong and illegal. It was about Henry Berg and the authorities having the ability to not only take on that sort of organized crime, but take on the political connections that organized crime had.
1: Yeah, that seems like it would fit right into what we've watched in this documentary. So. Yeah,
0: it would be it would be great. I'd I'd be really curious to know if it was in there. So, it, if any of you are picturing this whole scene with with Henry Berg. Busting up Kit Bird's dogfighting operation at the saloon. Uh, just to give you an accurate image of that, it's worth realizing that dogfighting in this context, where it was happening in New York, was mostly dogs versus rats. Um, it was it was rat uh. baiting, and so they would they would release a bunch of rats in a pit with a dog, and the dog would just kill tons and tons of rats. They um, often suffering wounds themselves, but in the in the history of dog fighting in America, it's an example of how there's a lot of different kinds of dog fighting that happened historically, and it happens all over the country um, and I think that's worth remembering um, and we'll get into this more I think in other episodes. but when it comes to animal fighting, there is no geographic area of the country, there is no class, there is no culture that is free of animal fighting within the United States. It's happened everywhere and been committed by um you know, people from all walks of life.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So um I wanted to share this quote, which is also from the Animal Legal and Historical Center article that we'll put in the show notes, which um points out that um 20 years after the period we're talking about here, so after the New York laws expanded, after the other states kind of update their legislation, um, a judge in Mississippi kind of summed up how the legal system's view of animals had changed. So this was from 1887 and the judge here is talking about Mississippi's cruelty statute, but this is the quote. The judge said, this statute is for the benefit of animals as creatures capable of feeling and suffering, and it was intended to protect them from cruelty without reference to their being property or to the damages which might thereby be occasioned to their owners. The common law recognized no rights in such animals and punished no cruelty to them except insofar as it affected the right of individuals to such property. Such statutes remedy this defect. So that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of the way the law started to shift in the 1860s and 70s to look more like what we have today. And it's kind of interesting that the first case that Henry Berg got a successful prosecution for under the new uh, New York law actually dealt with farmed animals, specifically the way uh, sheep and calves were transported to slaughterhouses. So the ASPCA brought charges and obtained a conviction and a $10 fine, which I don't know how much that was back then, but that was the first successful animal cruelty prosecution under that law. So with stronger cruelty laws and the threat of actual enforcement came the first lobbying efforts for exemptions as well. So for example, that first New York law had an exemption for, quote, properly conducted scientific experiments, unquote, at medical colleges or universities, we'll see this would not be the end of exemptions. But to sum up this brief journey to the past, basically, over time, society has evolved to where most people agree all animals deserve protection from cruelty, not to protect personal property or public morals, but because they are living, feeling beings. Um, But in addition to remembering that all animals are still considered property, we also have to keep in mind that all animals are not treated equally in the legal system. So animals defined by society's companions generally have more protections than those that society categorizes as food. But... um Shifting into talking a little bit about modern day exemptions, um, David, would you maybe want to talk about some of those and maybe some of the obstacles that exist to enforcing cruelty laws, even in cases where there aren't explicit exemptions?
0: Certainly. So one of the big exemptions, and we'll have a whole podcast on this later on, so I'm not going to go into too much detail because we are going to do a whole episode on it, is Animals being outside the law just by virtue of the law, not thinking of them as animals. Uh, and again, we'll get into greater detail on it, but the short version is if you were thinking to yourself, self, how could I keep these animals from being protected under animal cruelty law? An easy way to do that is just to make sure the animals, the, the animals that you want not to be protected do not count as animals themselves. So that's one way. We'll put that aside because, again, Nicole and I will get into that on another episode in greater detail. Let's talk specifically about scenarios where the law recognizes that the creatures in question count as animals but still allows various things to happen to them that might not be legal to do to other animals. Uh, Because, again, remember when we're talking about cruelty law, it's protecting animals from – being subject to unlawful cruelty, there are things that you and I would consider cruel. Uh, if we're talking to a, if we're talking about things with anyone just casually, we'd say this is cruel behavior. But the law doesn't consider it criminally cruel. And a really big example of those is farmed animal exemptions, um, areas of the law that say it is illegal to cause an animal suffering. Or it is illegal to mutilate an animal. it is illegal to kill an animal except unless that killing mutilation suffering is part of a accepted farm animal husbandry practice or a normal part of slaughter or so forth and uh, again this this acts to give different animals or animals being used differently by humans, different levels of protection. And it's really all about that relationship between the animal and the human. If the animal is being used by humans to serve the ends of producing food, fiber, etc., that animal gets less protections under these kinds of exemptions. Uh, And some of those exemptions are, as I've discussed, explicit. It explicitly says it's illegal to kill an animal unless you're killing that animal in a way that constitutes humane slaughter. Some of those exemptions are implicit. Sometimes the law simply says something like, it is illegal to cause an animal unjustifiable pain. And it does not define what unjustifiable means. As humans, we are pretty clever creatures. We can justify all kinds of things. And so that creates a very elastic space in the law that potentially allows a lot of treatment of animals that, again, in just everyday speech, we would probably consider cruel. Um, There are other exemptions, some of them you've alluded to already, Nicole, around research or hunting. Um, Euthanasia is an exemption that's also going to exist in every state. Um, yeah, the ability to, to kill an animal without causing that animal undue suffering or unnecessary suffering. Um, and there are 50 states out there, plus D.C., plus the territories. So we're not going to get into a breakdown of how all of those individual laws work. Suffice so it to say that we've got generally a position where modern laws are about The animal experience and about, as we were just discussing, protecting animals from suffering, from death, et cetera. But those modern laws also have exemptions. And those exemptions will make it so that certain animals or certain treatments of animal are lawfully permitted. And we can have a debate. We should have a debate about whether those exemptions are working the way they should. Are they giving society what we want? Or are they going further than we want? Are they creating loopholes that we don't anticipate? I would argue that it's also good for us to face those exemptions head on and acknowledge what they really say. For example, if we have a law that says it is illegal to cause an animal suffering, it is illegal to mutilate an animal, and then the law says unless you are doing that in the service of producing eggs or producing dairy or producing meat. Effectively, what that law is saying is we acknowledge as a society that mutilating animals is bad, that causing animals suffering is bad. We are willing to put up with that badness if it gets us these things. And we can have a social discussion, a debate as a culture about whether that is a deal we should make. But it's a deal that acknowledges that we are doing something harmful to those animals in the first place. We're just doing something that we're willing to put up with. That's different than a law that says it's illegal to cause an animal unjustified or unnecessary or unjustifiable suffering. Because that kind of law is framed in such a way that it it says the suffering that animal experienced was never a problem in the first place because it was justified, because it was necessary. And I think that kind of framing makes it harder for us to really face head on the cost of what we're actually getting as a society. I would rather us look ourselves in the mirror and be real about the way we're treating animals as a society. And if we don't like it, change the law, make it different. We have the ability to do that. And we'll certainly be talking about that in future episodes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this common phrasing of unjustifiable and unnecessary suffering, you know, as you alluded to, it makes it sound inevitable. Oh, there's nothing we can do. This is the way it has to be done. And uh, as you also noted, it's it's not generally defined and, you know, it's a loophole so big you could drive a truck through it <laughs> basically. A slaughterhouse truck sun. perhaps. Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. And so, and there's a, there's a lot of misperceptions um, about this uh, this subject as well. I don't know if you've found this, but it's pretty common for people to think, just assume there's a whole host of legal protections that you know that protect farmed animals from from cruel treatment that just really don't exist. And a lot of times, people are kind of surprised to to learn the state of and and you know. You, you and I might say, no, they are protected. and They just haven't been. Uh, I don't want to go down that path now.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm going to take us down that path. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Because you're right. I do hear this misperception a lot, but I also hear the opposite. So I hear the misperception mm. that farm animals are perfectly protected. They get the same protections as dogs and cats.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, ferrets and bunnies that live in people's houses, that all animals get mm. The same level of protection. And therefore, we don't need to worry about chickens and pigs and cows in farms because don't they get the same protection as other animals? And that is inaccurate. It is inaccurate because of these exemptions. But the other thing that I commonly hear is the opposite of the spectrum where people say, well, farmed animals aren't protected at all, so there's nothing you can do. You know, people will say, well, I've seen this undercover video of awful stuff happening to animals on farms. I've seen animals Tortured, I've seen them treated in ways that had nothing to do with normal farm animal practice, but we can't do anything about that because they're on farms, so they don't get any protection. And that isn't true either. The The misperception about that really gives animals in that context way less protection than they are due and really allows people engaged in that kind of conduct to get away with more than they should. It helps them evade accountability. Even for an animal on a farm, even for an animal being used in research, even for animals who are being hunted, they still have protections. They just don't have as many protections as other animals. And it's important for us to bear that in mind and to bear in mind that we can change that level of protection. This is a function of the law. If we want those animals to have more protection, we can do that. But we also should know that they have some protection right now. You know, for farmed animals, for example, depending on what your state you're in, it may be perfectly legal to subject animals to accepted husbandry practices. So that would include, for example, cutting the beaks off chickens without anesthesia or castrating pigs without anesthesia. It doesn't include setting pigs or chickens on fire while they're alive. There is no world in which that is a accepted industrial animal practice in American farming, And so it simply wouldn't be subject to that exemption. Um, It may be an acceptable practice to kill an animal because that's how slaughter works, but it isn't an acceptable practice to torture an animal to death. And while I realize it's not as much protection as many of us want animals to have, if animals are being tortured to death in these kind of facilities, people can be held accountable, and they should be.
1: We're talking about what is uh, what's acceptable or standard, and not you know when we saw the depopulation or ventilation shutdown with the pigs during the pandemic. I know. I mean, I think that we. Would argue or did argue maybe that it is uh, that that was not accepted. I can't remember. No, what We the... we
0: argued that that was animal cruelty. Yeah, depopulation is a industry term for killing a whole lot of animals at a once. A
1: horrible you. Euth- it is
0: basically mass. It's meant to be mass euthanasia, but the idea behind euthanasia is that it's as painless as possible. It's
1: supposed to be mercy killing, right? It's not.
0: really hard to euthanize animals in mass because it's really hard to do painless killing for a whole lot of animals at the same time. You lose the sort of individual attention that is sort of required to do a painless death. Um, And so with ventilator shutdown, it's a method of depopulation that basically involves shutting down the ventilation in these giant warehouses where animals on industrial farms live. And without that ventilation, Waste gases build up in the warehouse, temperature rises, and the animals basically suffocate and cook to death at the same time. It's horrible. It's awful. And I don't think anyone would describe that as a pleasant way to go or as a humane way to go. I don't think anyone would describe that as an acceptable euthanasia method. And in fact, reading interviews from farmers who've done mass depopulation through ventilator shutdown, it's horribly traumatic for them because – the animals suffer and they, they suffer audibly. You can hear them. Um, and these, you know, this is traumatic for people who work with animals in contexts where animals are going to be slaughtered as a matter of course, who find this to be horrific. Uh, so our analysis was that as conducted in the particular case we were looking at, that amounted to animal cruelty, that it, Because of how it happened and because of how the animals suffered, it was not appropriate and it was not lawful.
1: So besides exemptions, there are other obstacles um, to stronger laws protecting animals. So we know that most people say they want stronger legal protections for animals. There's lots of polling on this. You know, one might pose the question, why are laws so slow to catch up to society's values? Who wouldn't support stronger laws to protect animals? Well <laughs> the biggest one <laughs>
0: oh, who, this who question wouldn't was support that indeed
1: <laughs> posed to us. Uh, this is something people ask. So the biggest one is the animal ag industry, um, which opposes almost all new animal protection legislation or aggressively lobbies um, to exempt Farmed animals or farming practices. Especially.
0: And that's true yeah. whether or not the legislation has anything to do with animals in ag. Yes, The law exactly. can specifically say this doesn't apply to agriculture. Yes. The be they against still- it because they are so worried that it's, it's just a slippery slope. And the next thing you know, dairies will be illegal and horses will be voting and dogs will be driving. Yep. <laughs> and I say that partially in jest, but
1: oh, we do hear similar. Also
0: I, I often hear from people who say <laughs> if animal protections increase, if in fact animals have legally recognizable interests or rights, what's to stop animals from voting or driving? And my answer is usually I've met a lot of animals. I don't think any of them know what voting is or are interested in driving. Those aren't <laughs> rights that animals would have. Having some rights doesn't give you all rights.
1: Exactly. So the animal ag industry's influence really can't be overstated in the political arena. They have tons of financial resources. They have deep political and cultural ties, particularly in states where farming is a big part of the economy. Um, so they just have a ton of influence over our political system. When we talk later about uh, ag-ag laws, we'll see, you know, they have a hand in drafting, uh, lots of legislation that we oppose because, you know, Part of what we do is, you know, we try to get good laws passed for animals, but we also oppose bad laws, which it's th- those are always coming down the pike too. So it's kind of this two-pronged thing. But animal ag is always on the side of less protection for animals, aggressively so. And this industry sees animals as commodities and stronger laws in this arena is going to mean things like animals would have to have more space and, you know, whether, I mean, we see this in the fights, you know against laws like Prop 12, I guess is the more recent iteration, in California, which basically just says animals need to be able to stand up, turn around, spread their wings if they have wings, you know, lie down, stand up comfortably. I mean, this is very minimal, and this was a hard fought, and it's still being fought. Uh, So just I can't emphasize enough that, like, just giving animals a a tiny bit more space where they can... stand up and sit down comfortably is is opposed with all of the massive resources that this industry has.
0: And at some level, it, it really is about animals as commodities, because as we've discussed, part of what is at the heart of modern cruelty law and something that's really at the heart, I argue, of animal law as a movement is the recognition under the law that animals are someone, not something that animals are not interchangeable widgets. And if your whole business is predicated on running a factory farm that treats animals in a factory manner as interchangeable widgets, once lawyers start talking about how that might not be the case, I totally understand why you would get nervous. At the same time, I would like it if the ag industry would be a little more transparent and honest about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We get a lot of a lot of the arguments we get are sort of premised on the idea that there is a small farm out there with a red barn and you know, uh, mm-hmm. this individual family standing out there like American Gothic. And they love their animals and treat them well. And they, all, they know all their animals by name. They are doing boutique animal care. This is not the way the modern animal agriculture industry works. It can't be because they could not produce the amount of dairy, animal flesh, fiber, and eggs that they do on a daily basis if they were doing that kind of boutique animal raising.
1: Yeah, it's important to note that's like over 99% of like animal products and such come from those factory farms. Oh, absolutely. Like the sheer majority of, you know, we can't, that also is hard to overestimate. It's not. (laughs) <laughs> it's not like, oh, not many come from small. It's like, no, basically like hardly any. Now,
0: almost all of them yes. come out of industrial farms mm-hmm. because it's the, it's the, A, it's how you get this much throughput and B, it's what the industry has arrived at is a way to squeeze as much money as possible out of the animals. It's a way to get just a fraction of a cent more on each pound of pig on each sale of bacon. And I think part of the the opposition that you were describing, Nicole, to laws that would require cage sizes so that animals could stand up and move around is because in a factory warehouse environment, if you expand the cages that much, well, then that costs you maybe an animal or two that you couldn't otherwise house. And that reduces your overall profits by a few cents per animal. And then suddenly you're not making as much money. So I understand where they're coming from, but I do wish that they were a little more clear that where they're coming from is uh, running a factory farm where they're getting as much money as possible out of the animals instead of running a bucolic individual tiny farm where the animals are frolicking in the fields and living happy lives.
1: So not the case. Um, yeah, so it's absolutely about their bottom line and about cutting into profits is why they oppose even these merest merest improvements in how animals are kept in intensive confinement throughout their short lives okay. the animal ag industry also as as we mentioned they they lobby against Lots of bills that have absolutely nothing to do with farming, citing this fearsome slippery slope. But that brings us to another profession that we see frequently standing in opposition to stronger animal protection laws. And this one um, tends to surprise people more than animal ag as being an opponent. David, what is this group?
0: So this would be veterinary associations. And I want to be very clear that when I'm talking about this, I am not talking about individual veterinarians. I'm not necessarily talking about veterinarians in practice. I'm talking about lobbying groups on behalf of veterinarians. In the same way that, as an attorney, I am not the same as the American Bar Association. Veterinarians are not the same as various veterinary associations. I know a lot of veterinarians, a lot of vet techs who are doing heroic work on the daily on behalf of animals and on behalf of people who care for animals and love their animals in a lot of contexts, large animal vets so-called exotic animal vets, vets that do work with wild animals, vets that do work with dogs and cats and bunnies and ferrets. Tons of vets doing tons of good stuff for animals. The lobbying groups around vets have a duty and an interest to represent the commercial interests of veterinarians as a group. So not individual vets, but vets as a profession. And this is another place where That lobbying group gets nervous when people start talking about animals not being commodities, animals not being things, because a lot of the way their business practice has been historically situated is around the human as the client and the animal as property, the animal as a thing. Um, And I think that's not something, again, that reflects how a lot of individual vets act. I think a lot of individual vets recognize and believe and viscerally know that the animals they work with are their patients and the animals they work with are living creatures who are unique and experience life in a myriad of ways. But again, the industry is really concerned that if you start treating animals as someone, not as something, that that's going to complicate the model, that that's going to mean that animals might receive different levels of care, or that there might be changes in the way veterinary malpractice law works, and so forth. Personally, I think a lot of those objections have been debunked. For example, there's been a lot of work done around veterinary malpractice that seems to indicate that increasing animal protection and increasing animal status does not make it more expensive to be a veterinarian, and in fact, that the way insurance models work can easily accommodate this. But I'll leave the details of that to someone who actually does insurance law. I think our takeaway is, again, this is a place where there's a commercial interest, and institutional interest in things staying the way they have been. And the way things have been is animals are property, animals are things. And that represents, therefore, a objection to not necessarily animals stopping being property, but rather animals stopping being things. Uh, because again, there's no inherent conflict between animals being property and still being someone. That's perfectly viable. It's instead a conflict between animals being someone and being something. You know, The notion that a dog is interchangeable with any other dog of the same breed or the same age, which any of us who have dogs would, would argue is absurd. You, know, you can't, thinking of the three dogs that I'm fortunate enough to share my life with, they're all roughly the same age. They are all roughly the same breed type. Oh my gosh, none of them are interchangeable. They all have uh, unique personalities and in some way, some cases, unique challenges. But if one of them were to get sick or die, I wouldn't say it's appropriate for someone to just say, well, that's fine. Here's money to go out and get the same age dog of the same breed. It'll be just the same, right? It's like replacing a stereo. Those are really different things, and that difference comes down to someone versus something. And when you are running an industry that involves animals and money, it can be really scary to think about animals being someone versus something. I think people need to come to terms with that fear, particularly if they are representing an industry that makes its money largely by People paying to get animals taken care of because we want them to be cared for as someone.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's it's just it's ironic. Although I don't, I hate using that word. I don't know what it means anymore. I always think I'm using it wrong. But it's like a funny ambivalence that you know the the whole profession is sort of dependent on this this bond that people feel with their animals, and that's the reason that people pay lots of money for veterinary medical care is because their animals are unique individuals someone's not some things not commodities and so it's it's you know for the for the veterinary medical associations i mean particularly avma i don't know the state ones probably follow in the national footsteps but you know co- co- it's being so afraid of you know this sort of any change in animals legal status to recognize that they are someone and not something. and it's like but that's your your whole profession kind of capitalizes on that fact that that's how people feel about right. their animals and and again this is not to individual vets it's the professional association and their lobbying efforts it's weird yeah
0: and it's I do think part of it is also you know, a fundamental misunderstanding that improving the lives of animals improving the status of animals doesn't. Inherently mean that animals aren't property. I think that there's some, some people in the veterinary association, I think are under the impression that improving the position of animals somehow means that animals are going to stop being property. There will be no more companion animals. Everyone's going to have to set their dogs and cats free. It's going to be <laughs> anarchy in the streets and then the whole profession will go away. No. And that's like Nicole and I are, are, are trying not to laugh at each other over video right now because A, I don't think anyone who has animals wants that to happen. Uh, I I adore my dogs. I adore my cats. I think the world of them, none of them are prepared to survive on their own. Um, as someone <laughs> who, for quite a while, had companion ferrets, uh, these are animals that are really incapable of surviving on their own. Ferrets uh, have no sense of self-preservation or fear. They don't do well in the wild. I do not want a world where these animals are just turned loose in the streets. I don't think any of us do. And in a similar way, improving the position of animals, saying that animals are someone's, doesn't mean that they can't be property. I believe that my the dogs and cats that I'm fortunate enough to share my life with are someone. I believe they're all individual Unique, wonderful creatures, I also own them. And I'll use that property status in the law to protect them in various ways. And I wish that I wish people had a better understanding of that that it's not trying to help animals, trying to improve their position is not the same as just turning all animals loose into the wild and seeing what happens next.
1: Yeah, it's really unfortunate because. If you see, see some of the legislation that the AVMA comes out against, it's like, really? You're against that bill? Right. <laughs> it has nothing to do with even, um, it can just be like some unrelated animal protection. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I'm frequently sort of surprised and disappointed to see some, some of the, the sides they take on, um, animal protection legislation. But so another reason, uh, to take animal cruelty seriously, you know, setting aside, obviously we we take we want to take animal cruelty seriously for the animals themselves, but you know there are some like other ramifications of the law being slow to catch up with how uh how society feels, how many of us feel about our companion animals particularly and that's the the so-called link between violence to animals and violence to humans. so I think most of our listeners are probably aware by now that there's A lot of research showing a correlation between animal abuse and other types of violent crime, including domestic violence. We can put a link, no pun intended, (laughs) in the show notes uh, with further resources about that, but just... Generally, in domestic violence situations, animals themselves are often targets of abuse for the simple fact that they're vulnerable members of the family. And this is one area where being considered family is not necessarily positive for an animal. You know, we talk a lot about how, how good it is that animals are, are taking a more central place in families and being considered family members. But, you know, if that family's dysfunctional dysfunctional or, or violent the animal becomes uh, entangled in the abuser's web of dominance and control. And so it's it's not always a good thing <laughs> to be a member of a family if that family's got a violent person in it because, um, you know, animals occupy the bottom rung of the power hierarchy within families. They often have less uh, functional autonomy or, you know, we might say freedom or they're subject to more control uh, than children and indeed are sometimes abused by children. Often when that happens, the child is being abused themselves. And sometimes then they turn turn around and do the same thing to the least powerful member of the family. But it's just an entangled sort of web of dominance and control. And um, being in a family like this is uh, very dangerous for animals.
0: Yeah. And... You'll probably hear us say at various times this season, since we're talking about crime and animals, that there's a lot of places where we don't have good numbers on what's happening around animal crime. This is actually an area where we do have some pretty decent stats because there's been a lot more research on domestic violence than there has been on animal cruelty in general. So we know that a significant amount of domestic violence survivors, human survivors, Report that the abuser threatened the an animal that was important to them as a means of trying to control the victim, trying to control the humans, the human victim. We know that yeah. a lot of human survivors report that they delayed extricating themselves from that unhealthy relationship because they had difficulty finding a place they could go where they could bring the animal and keep the animal safe. And beyond this, outside of domestic violence. We have some pretty good – we have good data on the link. There's a lot of scientific work that's been done on this over the last decades. And our knowledge around the way the dynamics between human-on-human and human-on-animal violence uh, operate has improved significantly. And our link fact sheet that Nicole mentioned, if you go to the show notes, we'll give you a lot more info on that. The short version is that this isn't a – formulaic scenario. You know, it's not that someone who commits animal cruelty as a child is going to turn into a serial killer as an adult. As Nicole said, often those children are themselves being subject to abuse. And being an abuse survivor doesn't mean that you're going to turn out to commit abuse in the future. There are a lot of different ways that can go. Rather a good way to think about it, rather than that kind of formulaic experience, is that. Individuals who commit antisocial violence very rarely restrain themselves to one target. A human who acts out in a way that involves causing causing antisocial harm to others doesn't usually stick to just one target or one species. If you are someone who acts out by engaging in antisocial violence, you are likely to do that with multiple targets multiple victims and so it's good for us to know that animals being subject to antisocial violence are a signpost for humans who may be subject to antisocial violence and vice versa the details of how that work get quite complicated again we've got more info in our fact sheet but i would encourage you just to hold on to that as your short version because i think that's a Way to acknowledge the reality of the situation that also acknowledges the nuance. And it's important for us to keep that nuance in
1: mind. Yes, definitely. Thank you for pointing all of that out. So in addition to being direct targets of abuse, um, as you mentioned, David, perpetrators often use animals as a way to control and manipulate their human victim. And they do this by threatening to harm a cherished animal as a way to coerce um, their partner to stay in a relationship. So they'll say things like, if you leave me, I will hurt Fluffy. Um, and unfortunately, these threats are often carried out. Um, so this isn't you know, it's this happens. And with abusers, um, frequently injure or kill animals to retaliate against um, a partner who left. And David, as you mentioned, we don't have um, a lot of hard numbers on a lot of things. Like, uh, well, no, I want to rewind that. I just, I don't know if I should say fr- frequently abusers injure or kill animals. I mean, we know what happens. I think, but, I um, think frequently
0: is good.
1: Okay. Like so just back up and say it again. Unfortunately, these threats are often carried out with abusers injuring or killing animals to retaliate against a partner who left. And as one can imagine, this causes many victims to delay leaving an abusive relationship because they have no safe place for their animals. And so a 2017 study, for example, showed that 56% of women in domestic violence shelters had delayed leaving a violent partner out of fear for their animals and a desire to protect them. So it's a really difficult position for victims who have animals because a lot of domestic violence shelters have no pets policies. I've written um, in the past about the tension between companion animals as family on the one hand versus their legal classification as property, uh, specifically sort of the instability of this family member role in part due to lack of supportive laws and public policy. So more people consider their animals to be family members and, and we use that classification a lot, but unfortunately there is, there is a lack of sort of uh, public policy support there. So no pets policies uh, are case in point. They show us how this uh, family member role is dependent on the social context. So As real as this relationship is within the context of this micro world shared by the animal and their family, and that family may comprise just one person, um, this relationship sort of comes up against these hard limits in the wider society in the form of these exclusionary laws and policy that very much define animals, uh, differently and and not as a recognized family member. Um, so no pets policies in domestic violence shelters, in rental housing, in transitional housing, in hotels and motels, even on uh, public transportation, these all really limit the options for a victim who wants to flee an abuser um, but not leave their animal behind in danger. And this, you know, of course, disproportionately affects people who have fewer resources, economic resources to, you know, might not have a car, might be dependent on public transportation or, you know, often getting a, uh, a an animal-friendly apartment costs more money. And it's, it's just a lot harder um, if you have fewer economic resources. So what happens is victims stay too long or they have to surrender a beloved animal to a shelter, which could sever that relationship forever. And this animal friend might be their primary source of emotional support because abusers, one of the things they do is often isolate their victims, cut them off from other friends and family, which can really shrink down their social world. So their animal friend oftentimes is a primary source of support. So this is a huge problem, but it's an area where there have been improvements. This is this is an area where there is, along with um, more awareness of this link between cruelty to animals and other types of violence. Um there's more awareness around the, the problem of uh, domestic violence shelters, often not being able to accommodate or being unwilling to accommodate companion animals. And it is often a, I think, you know, they sort of don't have the means to not just to like, no, we just don't want those animals here. Like there, there are some other, you know, provisions you have to have in place to allow animals, but more are, are making uh, ways to accommodate animals or they're doing things like partnering with local animal shelters or with foster families to provide a safe haven um, for companion animals in these situations. There's been some federal funding in recent years that gives grants, to domestic violence shelters and transitional housing that make accommodations to allow animals. So these facilities can apply to get grants to help them do that. And on the legislative front, we've seen an increase in the number of states that allow courts to include animals in domestic violence protection orders. Um, For
0: the lawyers listening, this this area that Nicole's talking about, abilities for foster families to care for animals who belong to a survivor, who's getting themselves out of an unhealthy relationship. The good news is that a lot of that is a purely legal problem. Setting up a scenario where a survivor, a human survivor can turn their animal over to a foster family for a certain period of time and then get that animal back. That's just contract law. That's just Mm, bailments. That's a great point. If you are an attorney who does contract work, who does bailment work, or who can get yourself up to speed to do that, you can work with foster-based rescues. You can work with domestic violence shelters. You can work with the relevant social services and nonprofits to make this happen. And that's the kind of local impact that you can do without waiting for legislative change, without waiting for the big case law that shifts things around. And it's exciting to know that's out there, particularly because while this is a larger story of societal transition and society figuring out how we get our laws to catch up with the recognition that we all have that animals are not objects. This is also a story of individual animals and individual humans and trying to help them as individuals. And that is a way that we can do that. That is a way that you, if you've got those legal skills, can help make that happen.
1: I'm so glad that you pointed that out. Thank you so much for mentioning that.
0: So Desmond's, Desmond's case, as Nicole said, involves a lot of the things we've been discussing uh, and i'll i 'll give us a quick background on what uh, what went on with desmond and desmond 's tragic fate and how that ultimately led to the passage of of this great law so Desmond was a a pit bull type puppy he 's a, a blocky headed dog with with short fur sort of tawny colored uh, and he he 's living with his human um and his human is in an unhealthy relationship. Um, she's she's in an unhealthy relationship with the father of her, her baby, um, and she needs to get out. And She's having trouble figuring out how to get out with Desmond being brought along, so she ultimately decides that the safest thing for Desmond, the safest thing for her and her baby, is for her to surrender Desmond to an animal shelter, because that way she can find a place to go that gets her out of this unhealthy relationship that keeps her and her baby safe. And Desmond will be able to go to a family that is able to keep him safe. And so that's what she does. She surrenders Desmond. Desmond goes to this shelter. And shortly thereafter, the, uh, the father of this woman's child, um, the, the person that she's tried to escape from, goes to the shelter. And he shows up there and gives them a, a face, a false name, and he describes the dog that he wants, and he he essentially describes Desmond. Uh, I don't know exactly what he said, but I imagine him saying, "Well, you know, I really like blocky-headed dogs. I've got a weakness for pit types. I really, I really like dogs that are kind of brown. I really see a brown dog in my life." And the shelter is like, "Wow, this is amazing. We we have a dog just like that right here." And. um so the shelter. It just
1: makes me so mad.
0: It's it's incredible. I get sad. so mad
1: every time I, I hear about it. It just yeah. makes me angry. But it's so evil. Yeah, the fact
0: that he's doing it under a super day, but it really underscores the yes
1: the deliberation, yeah.
0: the premeditation Premeditated. involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the shelter gets Desmond ready to go to what they think is going to be this loving home. Um, they get him a a purple collar and a purple leash because. Uh, because that's the leash that they've got to give out to animals that are going to their their homes at the end of the day at that time at the shelter, uh, and so there's there's pictures that are out there of Desmond like in his his exit his exit interview equivalent Desmond getting ready to leave he's got his collar and leash on he looks really happy and they give him to this this guy and the guy takes Desmond away so this guy spends the next few months spending his days litigating child custody with the mother of his his child, the woman who had given Desmond up to try to keep him safe. And then in the evening, he comes home and he goes to his bathroom where he's got Desmond locked up, and he, he abuses Desmond. He beats him, he feeds him about a cup of rice a day. This goes on for a while until one evening, he ends up strangling Desmond to death, and he dumps Desmond's body in the woods. And this, is, this story is infuriating enough already, I think, for many of us listening, because it, it really does touch a lot of the points that we've already sketched out in terms of dynamics of domestic violence and animal cruelty, um, you know, in terms of the, the suffering that animals can be subject to in spaces where animal cruelty is happening. Uh, fortunately, in this case, Desmond's body is found. Law enforcement follows up. They figure out who this guy is, and he's charged with animal cruelty. Uh, He ends up entering into a diversion program. He makes a plea deal um, and goes into a diversion program that is designed for nonviolent offenders. And if you're wondering what a diversion program is, uh, diversion programs are essentially Uh, Sentencing options that say, defendant, if you do X, Y, and Z, usually this is if you complete a treatment program, if you complete an educational program, if you do something designed to address the underlying causes of what, what caused you to be in court in the first place, if you successfully do that, then your charge will be dismissed. We'll erase this from your record. Uh, we talk we'll talk more about this in our episode later on when we talk about sentencing and outcomes so if you're curious oh you'll hear more a lot more about it then <laughs> but diversion is in general a really neat option for courts and prosecutors and defense attorneys to have in their toolkit because it's a way to connect addressing the underlying risk factors that might cause that criminal action to happen again with an incentive for the defendant to follow through on reducing those risk factors and does it in a way that reduces the impact on the defendant of potentially having a conviction on their record. Because again, if you do diversion in most cases, your conviction disappears. And that's, in fact, the way this diversion was meant to be set up. The problem, of course, is that in this case... As in many cases, not every crime is eligible for diversion. And in this particular Connecticut scenario, um, I should say, I don't know if we mentioned this all goes down in Connecticut. In this particular Connecticut scenario, defendants weren't supposed to do the, be able to do this diversion program for a violent crime. Uh, they weren't supposed to be able to do this program for a repeat crime, um, and there may be there's a question of whether he had a repeated diversion issue that was relevant here. He had gone through a diversion program in the past, I believe, for a domestic violence related offense. So arguably, he should have been doing this on those grounds. But leaving that aside, I, I think most of us would be hard pressed to explain how strangling a dog to death after starving and beating that dog over a period of months. Is anything other than violent.
1: Yeah, how is that not a violent crime? It's a
0: viscerally, yeah, it's a viscerally, physically destructive act. It is beating and then strangling a living creature until that creature is dead. It's hard to get closer to the core definition of violent crime than that. Yeah. yeah. And part of the problem is there just, there wasn't anyone in that courtroom, as far as I know, who made the argument that this was a violent crime and Part of that is it wasn't necessarily anyone's job to do that. You know, it was the defense attorney's job to try to find the best outcome for their client, to argue their client's interest. And certainly he had an interest in going into diversion rather than doing some less pleasant sentences. Uh, you know, the prosecutor's job, their responsibilities to the state, to the community. Uh, and I imagine that they signed off on this because they believed that the community thought this was a divertible option. There just wasn't an attorney for Desmond. There wasn't anyone who could stand up and say, on behalf of the animal, your honor, I would like you to consider that certainly from Desmond's perspective, this was a violent act for the creature that was the victim of strangulation. This was incredibly violent. Please take that into, your, into account when you sign off on this sentence. Fortunately, uh, the people of Connecticut were not pleased by this outcome. And Nicole, I think you've got some background on how they reacted and what happened next.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So I'm going to mention a few of the key players that were really important during the legislative process, as well as some of the compromises that were made along the way. Um, Jessica Rubin is the University of Connecticut law professor who spearheaded Desmond's law. She has a law review article. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes. But this... um, Article goes in depth on the process of getting the law passed and the type of work that court appointed advocates do. Um, she notes in that article that the, the process of getting Desmond's law passed was, um, it was long and complex. It required collaboration and compromise among several parties. One thing she says was helpful in the passage of Desmond's law were Changes in law school education that were happening at the time as kind of a backdrop. So she talks about the fact that the legal academy, you know, it's been shifting for some time toward experiential education and service learning opportunities, shifting from mainly lecture-based classroom instruction and more of a focus on teaching students practical legal skills. So sort of getting out of the classroom and learning by doing. Um, In 2014, the ABA actually passed a resolution uh, that required all law students to take six credits of experiential coursework, and it required law schools to provide opportunities for students to do this. So she notes that this context was helpful and that University of Connecticut uh, School of Law signed on to support Desmond's Law pretty early in the process and that the law school was critical to uh, its passage. So in part because it showed legislators that if this bill was enacted, UConn would supply supervised law students who uh, could serve as advocates. And law students also testified during this uh, process that they wanted to do this work for animal victims and that they wanted to gain practical courtroom experience. So the support from UConn Law and the students showed legislators that the bill would generate some cool educational benefits if it was passed. Also uh, key was Jessica Rubin's collaboration with Connecticut. State Representative Diana Urban, who had for many years championed legislation to protect uh, both animals and children. And she would often visit Jessica's animal law class as a guest speaker. And the two of them got to analyzing and discussing uh, statistics around outcomes of animal cruelty cases in Connecticut. And they found that the vast majority of them were dismissed or not prosecuted. And they wondered how to address this problem. And that's when they started working together on the legislation that would eventually become Desmond's law. And then, you know, David, you mentioned that people were not pleased with the outcome of Desmond's case. And that brings us to another important part of this process was Desmond's army. And Desmond's army is the group of concerned citizens that formed in response to Desmond's case. So they attended public hearings. They testified in support of the bill. Now that Desmond's law is law, They are still a volunteer organization, and they serve an important role in its implementation. So Jessica talks about uh, one of the shortcomings of Desmond's law is that in an effort to make it cost-free, assigning cases to advocates is not managed by the state. So the program relies on volunteers. And members of Desmond's army fulfill that function of tracking cruelty cases in the state, and also connecting cases with advocates who can then seek appointment from the court. So Desmond's Army is still very important in the law now that it's passed. And the members of Desmond's Army also attend court hearings and cruelty cases, which um, Jessica notes is important because courts notice this, and it signals that animal cruelty is an issue the public cares about and wants to see appropriately handled.
0: That's actually part and parcel of the way our criminal justice system is supposed to work. The reason we have public open hearings is, is not just to prevent the government from doing shady stuff and hiding what's happening with criminal prosecution, but it's also because that entire criminal prosecution is supposed to be the community making a statement. The prosecutor is speaking on behalf of the community. And so it's incredibly helpful for the judge, for the prosecutor, um, The defense is probably going to have some different opinions. Uh, I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, But it's incredibly important if the community does have an opinion for the community to be present. Uh, And the way that you're present, of course, is important. It's it's important in a court that (laughs) you allow the court to happen, (laughs) that you allow the court proceedings to occur with decorum. And Desmond's army does a great job of this. They show up. They wear purple shirts because that's, again, the collar that Desmond, the collar and leash combo he was given Um, when when he was adopted out, was purple. And so they wear that in his honor. But they simply watch the proceedings. They don't interrupt. They don't cause havoc. They simply are there in the gallery demonstrating by their presence that someone cares about this. And that matters a lot, especially in cases where the animal victim is not owned by anyone or is only owned by the abuser. Because in that case, there may not be a human to show up on behalf of the animal. There may not be a human who owned that animal isn't and is upset that the animal is hurt. So knowing that the community cares, even when the defendant is the only person that knew the animal existed, makes a big difference. And again, it goes back to something we were talking about, oh wow, like an hour and a half ago, <laughs> um, which is that animal cruelty here and now in this day and age is not about other people's property. It's not about disrupting public order. It's about animal suffering. And so someone showing up to, simply by sitting there, effectively say, animals matter, even if there was no disruption to the public square, even if the person who beat that animal owned the animal, that makes a big difference.
1: Yeah, those are really great points. Desmond's Army also uh, directly helps victims of cruelty cases by connecting surviving animals with rescue organizations so that when animals can be rehabilitated and placed in homes, they're there to facilitate that process. And, you know, this is one of the unique challenges of cruelty cases, um, as we also saw in domestic violence situations. It's, you know, where do the animals go? So Desmond's Army helps with that crucial piece as well. One of the opponents of Desmond's Law was the Connecticut Federation of Dog Clubs and Responsible Owners, uh, which we didn't talk about this, but dog breeding groups often fight against animal protection legislation as well. So famously, the AKC or the American Kennel Club, uh, they tend to, along with the veterinary medical associations kind of fight against, sort of counterintuitively, I think, to, to a lot of people who haven't seen this over and over again. It's like, why is the AKC fighting this animal protection law? But that happens a lot, too. And he, here in Desmond's law, the case of Desmond's law, the Connecticut Veterinary Medical Association, as we might have expected, testified against the bill. So... Both the AKC and the Connecticut VMA claimed the law would interfere with owners' property rights over their animals. Which
0: is so bizarre.
1: I know. So weird. Apparently, they also feared that the law would establish legal standing for animals or their advocates. And to that, I say, I wish. I wish that's what you did. We um, should should probably take a moment
0: and tell people what legal standing is. Um, yeah. So legal standing, to condense a whole chunk of your first year of law school down to a few sentences, legal standing is the concept that you can show up in court and file a lawsuit yourself. You You count as someone who can initiate legal action on your own. You have standing to sue. You have standing to be sued. And that's not something animals typically have humans typically have standing, or at least they potentially could have standing, depending on whether they have some connection to the case. Animals don't. So if an animal is harmed by animal cruelty, they typically can't sue their abuser in the same way that a human could. Uh, We'll talk later on this season about some cases that we and our colleagues are working on that are trying to change that. But this... Desmond's law is not one of those cases. Desmond's law mm-hmm. did not, and it wasn't supposed to give animals standing, and neither are cap laws as a whole. Cap laws, again, are courtroom animal advocate programs. They involve judges appointing volunteer attorneys, volunteer law students to advocate for the interests of animals, advocate for the interests of justice. That's different than the animal having standing. It doesn't let the animal show up and initiate a case it only is something a judge can do once the case has already begun. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's really bizarre to me that the uh, you know, those Connecticut organizations thought this would give animals standing uh, because yeah. nothing in that text, uh, nothing in the bill text even comes close.
1: It's like, did you read the bill, or? Right. And yeah, even just, I don't know how you feel about it interfering with owners' property rights over animals. I it mean,
0: doesn't do that either.
1: Yeah, it's like you're usually in court for um, an animal cruelty charge, and right. Well,
0: I mean, first of all, there's nothing in the bill that stops animals from being property. Part of right. The beauty of a CAP program. You still
1: can't abuse your animal. Exactly. (laughs)
0: Like part of the beauty of CAPS is it's entirely property agnostic. Animals can be property. CAPS works great. Animals can be something other than property if someone wants Mm. to do that. CAPS still works great. Mm. All it depends on is are animals covered by cruelty law? As long as they're covered by cruelty law and you have a CAPS statute, then you can have courts appoint these volunteer attorneys, volunteer law students. In terms of interfering with the property rights of owners, first, as you allude to, Nicole, that's the only way that even potentially becomes relevant is if the owner is also the defendant. If the owner is alleged to have abused their own animal, is the only way they'd show up in court to have this argument. And even then, the way that their property rights could be interfered with aren't unique to cap laws. So... Connecticut, as many states do, has various ways of answering the question, what happens to an animal that you seize during a cruelty investigation? And certainly, seizing someone's animal, seizing the animal that someone owns, is interfering with their property, the same way that seizing someone's kilo of Coke is interfering with their property during a drug bust. (laughs) It's all property seizure. It's all property-related criminal law. But that interference in property exists whether or not the court subsequently appoints an advocate to speak up for the animal. The difference really is that if an advocate is appointed, that animal, who is also property, has someone who's specifically dedicated to speaking on their behalf, telling the judge things like, Your Honor, this case is not scheduled to happen for another eight months The dog has been in a kennel for two months already. That dog, no matter how well the kennel operates, is starting to degrade mentally and emotionally. Can we work out a deal between the defense and the prosecution to get the animal into a foster home? And that doesn't terminate the property rights of the defendant. It just means the dog is in a better place while you figure out what happens with the trial. Potentially, the advocate could say to the judge, your honor... This state has a statute that says if defendants aren't willing to pay for the care of their animals, they should give the animals up. The defendant in this case isn't paying for the animal's care. Someone needs to. Can you have the animal forfeited so that animal can be adopted to someone who will pay for their care? Yes, that would ultimately interfere with the defendant's property rights, but that's not something that the CAP advocate is causing. There's already a law in place to do that. The camp advocate is just helping the court understand what that law does.
1: Exactly. And it just kind of um, underlines just how these groups kind of almost reflexively (laughs) oppose any animal protection legislation with arguments that are pretty incoherent. It's just kind of this knee jerk. We're going to oppose this and this is why, but it doesn't. Make that
0: much sense? Yeah, my usual feeling when when their responses to caps laws, where people you know, people from various industries will say, oh, "I think this caps law is going to shut down our industry. I think this caps law is going to be be the doom of animal agriculture." My response is usually, "Remember, the caps law doesn't change what is cruel or not cruel. It doesn't make right. anything that was lawful yesterday illegal today." Yeah. So, tell me what you're doing in your industry that you think is yeah. criminally cruel.
1: That you're so worried. Right? <laughs> That's a really good point. Talk to me yeah. about that part. Exactly. So, I just want to uh, mention a few of the compromises that they had to make in order to get this into law. So, um, one of the areas where they had a compromise was in the, uh, in the area of coverage. So originally, all animals who were alleged victims of cruelty would have been covered, but the final version of the law only applies to dogs and cats. So the bill's language ended up getting changed late in the game in response to concerns from legislators from rural regions. So farmed animals and wild animals are not covered under Desmond's law. Another area where they compromised was the question of whose interests are Represented. So the original version had advocates representing the interest of the animal in response that this would create legal standing for animals. The language was changed to represent quote, the interest of justice. So at first they thought this change would weaken the advocate's role, but Jessica notes that in practice, it actually proved to be a good change. She's said that the interest of justice allows an advocate And the court to consider a broader range of interests, including those of community safety and other potential victims, which can be animals or humans. I know I've heard her talk about this, and I think she also mentioned that, like, in cases where the animal is deceased, that, you know, you're not representing the interest of that animal because they've been killed, but... The interest of justice allows sort of a broader range of advocacy. David, I, I think you have some thoughts on what the best language is there, and maybe you can tell us about that. I,
0: I do. And my, my thoughts on this have have changed over time. Hmm. Uh, so it used to be that Jessica and I would have these ongoing conversations about whether it's interest of justice or interest of the animal, which is better. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the the ALVF model law that we will link in the show notes, I believe that version still says interests of the animal, I've come to believe that the answer is to say both, to say interests of justice and interests of the animal. I love that. And that's for a few reasons. I mean, one is every attorney in that courtroom is there for the interests of justice. We've all sworn oaths to work for justice, and we all work for justice in different ways. So the prosecutor is serving the interests of justice by representing the state, by advocating for the community by trying to win a conviction in a case that they brought because they believe that it's a righteous prosecution. The defense attorney is serving the interests of justice by mounting a vigorous defense for their client, by representing their client's interests. The cap advocate, the animals attorney, is serving the interests of justice by helping the court, the prosecution, and the defense all have a better, more legally complete picture of what the animal's position is and what the animal needs, what the animal's interests are, and doing legal work on behalf of the animal. This is not just about explaining where the animal is at contextually, but also doing work that you need an attorney to do, but isn't necessarily something prosecutors or defense attorneys have time to do. For example, to go back to our earlier scenario where a dog would be better off living in a foster home for the next eight months pending trial, that requires some kind of legal agreement. Now, that's a contractual agreement that explains who continues to own the dog, who's responsible for the dog's care, who has custody of the dog, what that relationship looks like. You need an attorney to draft that instrument. You need an attorney to make sure it's legally sound, and that it's fair, And that's, I have yet to meet a public defender or a prosecutor who has the oodles of free time required to do that kind of work. Uh, It's not to say there aren't prosecutors and public defenders who don't do heroic things on behalf of animals, but very few of them have the extra bandwidth to make that happen because our criminal justice system, when it comes to prosecutors and public defenders, operates on the cheap. We as a society are happy to put more money into prisons. We're happy to put more money into uh, certain kinds of policing. We are not historically terribly into funding prosecutors or public defenders or judges. And so there's a bandwidth problem. And there's also a resources and education problem. If you are a prosecutor or a city attorney or a public defender or a private defender, and you've never done one of these cases before you might have no idea this was even an option, much less how to start drafting that illegal instrument or any of the other kind of legal maneuvers, legal motions that someone might file on the animal's behalf. So that's part of why I think it's important to be more precise than saying for the interests of justice. I also like interest of the animal because it really does spotlight and cabin out the role of this advocate. It it helps reinforce that the advocate is not in that courtroom to be a baby prosecutor. They're not in that courtroom to be a backup defense attorney. They are in that courtroom to address the victim interests of that animal. And they have entirely no role in whether or not the defendant is found guilty or not guilty. That's the job of the prosecution. That's the job of the defense. That is not the job of the advocate. Um, And I think in, in the case of Desmond's law and the work that Jessica does Uh, with her clinic and supporting advocates in that state, I don't think they've had to rely on that sort of distinction, in part because I think Jessica does such a great job teeing up the framework of this for practitioners, for volunteer attorneys, volunteer law students, so they know how that role works. Uh, I think especially as this expands to other states, it's going to be useful to have some clearly delineated rules that say, again, you are here for the animal. You are not here to back up the prosecution. You are not here to back up the defense. But I like having interests of justice at the same time, because I think it's good to underscore that this is about the justice system. And it's always good to remind attorneys that all of us have a overriding duty to justice, uh, particularly in this kind of litigation context That's why we are all in the room, and that's part of why it's important that animals have a voice in the room. Again, to get back to one of the first things we talked about in this episode, the whole premise of our legal system is we get more truthful outcomes. We get better outcomes. We get more clear outcomes. We get more justice when we have more interests accurately represented in that courtroom. And in a criminal case, the relevant parties, the relevant interests are more than just the state, more than just the defendant. There's also the victim. And so I think including interests of justice helps remind all of us that whether it's a human victim or an animal victim, the criminal justice system gets more justice when victims have a voice in court.
1: Wow. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. That all makes so much sense. I know that when I heard that they had to switch from interest of animals to interest of justice, it was like, oh yeah, that's too bad. And it seemed like a negative thing. Then when I heard Jessica talk about, oh, it actually had some like surprisingly good consequences. I was like, oh, okay, that's good. And I love including both. Why not both? And we cover all the bases that we want to cover. And I think uh, that makes eminent sense. So we don't have to choose between the interests of animal interest of justice, and I think, as you may have pointed out, often those overlap. But there's there's really good reasons, which you laid out so well, about why it makes sense to have both in future laws. So
0: I, I hear pushback sometimes from from opponents of these bills who who will often say, "Does this create an animal interest? How? What does it mean that we're that animals have legal interests now? This seems new and therefore frightening because in the law." We're a conservative profession, Lower C conservative. We don't like change. It scares us. You know, Lawyers like to know how the rules work. And we like to figure them out. And once we have them figured out, especially if they're working the way we want them to, we don't want them to change. And so people will say, <laughs> oh my gosh, good gods, what are you doing, man? Are you changing the rules on us? And my answer is no, because animals already have interests under the law. Again, that's the point of modern cruelty law. Modern cruelty law says... Animals have an interest in not suffering. Animals have an interest in not being treated with unlawful cruelty. We already know that. We wouldn't be having this court case in the first place if animals didn't have interests. So all Cap Law does when it it says the responsibility of that advocate is to speak to the animal's interests and the interests of justice is making sure that there is, in fact, someone in that courtroom who has that duty.
1: The last compromise I want to just mention is that uh, Desmond's law does not require courts to appoint advocates. It allows courts to appoint advocates. And, you know, they originally wanted it to be um, a requirement. They ended up with the permissive language, uh, Jessica said, because otherwise the bill just wouldn't have had a chance. But apparently this had not restricted the use of Desmond's law, at least as of when she wrote that um, article, which was in 2018. She notes in that article that until that point, in all but one case, each court that had been asked to appoint an advocate had agreed. So she does note, though, that, you know, there are additional provisions that could be added to Desmond's law or laws modeled on it, like moving forward. And she does suggest that appointing an advocate should be mandatory, not permissive, ideally, I guess, in laws like this going forward. So those are just a few of the compromises they had to make in that process. And and you
0: can actually see, uh, dear listeners, you can see effectively Desmond's Law 2.0, which is the revised version that Jessica Rubin uh, has built out attached to that Law Review article that we'll put in the show notes. Uh, So when we're looking at models of CAP laws, we've got Desmond's Law, the original, which is the law currently in effect in Connecticut. Uh, We've got Desmond's Law 2.0, which is the revised law that Jessica Rubin built and put in this Law Review article. We have uh, the ALDF model law uh, that I um, put together working with the Animal Law Clinic at Lewis and Clark Law School. And then we have Frankie's Law, uh, which is the second CAP law that has won passage. And this is a law that uh, passed in Maine right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Much like Desmond's case, there's a tragic backstory here. Frankie um, is a dog who was... Uh, dog-napped during a vehicle theft and um, abandoned and killed by by the thieves, Uh, his body actually washed up on the shore of the local district attorney's house. Uh, So pro tip to anyone planning to commit an animal crime, don't dump the body where it's going to wash up on the DA's front yard. That's not going to work out well for you. Yeah. I like to imagine that it was kind of a Twin Peaks animal crime moment.
1: Yeah, I started thinking about pop culture again too. <laughs>
0: right. Frankie's dead, wrapped in plastic. That was really funny for myself and Nicole. For those of you who haven't watched <laughs> Frankie's, you should do that. And you should also know that I have no so idea that Frankie the was actually wrapped in plastic. We'll see how much of that makes it into the actual podcast itself. But in any case, Frankie, Frankie was found on the you know, washed ashore on the DA's property, and The people who were responsible for his death were were tried. There was a criminal process. But this also really galvanized people in Maine to look south towards Connecticut and say, wow, Connecticut's had this law in practice for a while. It's been working out well there. Um, In fact, Jessica Rubin will have a law review coming out, a law review article coming out shortly, uh, talking about quantitative and qualitative outcomes from Desmond's law in Connecticut. Um, I don't know what the full stats on that are, but my understanding from things that I've seen Jessica publish elsewhere is that the feedback on this has been positive from judges, from prosecutors, from the defense bar, uh, and it's rare to get all three of those those groups signed mm-hmm. on to the same thing. So I think Maine looked at this and said it's working out well for Connecticut. We're not getting, we're not seeing any negative blowback there. Prosecutors seem happy, defense counsel seems happy, judges are happy this would be great to get in Maine. And so they passed their own version, which is very closely modeled on Desmond's Law. We'll put a link to Frankie's Law in the show notes so you can see what the differences are. But there are also at this point a number of other states that are looking at enacting their own cap laws, their own statutes that would do this same thing, allow judges to appoint volunteer attorneys, volunteer law students to speak to the interests of animals in these kinds of cases. Uh, I can't go into all of those specifically because lots of different jurisdictions, lots of different models. But generally, they follow a similar framework as Desmond's Law, Frankie's Law, the ALDF model, or Desmond's Law 2.0. States take different parts of those, mash them together, and come up with their own laws. Almost exclusively, they focus on this criminal space of animals who are the victims of animal crimes. There are a few laws that have hinted at branching out beyond that. Uh, For example, inquiring as to whether animal advocates could be appointable in divorce proceedings or in Hmm. potentially dangerous animal cases. Hmm. Currently, I think that as these laws wind their way through the legislative process, They are tending to be really criminal-focused, but it may be that in the future, we see some expansion of that to some of these other areas. For example, in a divorce proceeding, you have lawyers representing the divorcing parties, but you don't necessarily have anyone speaking up for the animal, and you could have an attorney who does that. If the judge was curious to know what the animal's interest is, how the animal would be best served, they could appoint someone to speak to that. That might be particularly relevant in the handful of states that have specifically passed laws directing judges in divorce cases to take the animal's interest into account. Um, I believe currently that's what Illinois, Alaska, and California. Similarly, dangerous dog cases, dangerous animal cases, but it's almost always dogs, could be an interesting place for this because in those cases, the state is typically – conducting a hearing to evaluate what the animal did. Did they growl at someone? Did they lunge at someone? Did they bite someone? And why they did it. Was the animal provoked? Was the animal defending someone? Uh, Was the animal being harmed or abused? Was the animal on their property or off their property? And then depending on those factors, the state will determine whether this animal qualifies as dangerous, and if so, how dangerous. And then that finally will result in you know, the animal either having to wear a muzzle when they're out in public, the animal needing to live in a certain kind of exclo- enclosure, the animal potentially being euthanized, and that kind of thing. There isn't necessarily anyone in those hearings to speak for the animal. The animal's owner might decide to speak for the animal, but they might not. They might not even show up. The animal might not be owned. Um, some owners don't show up because they don't find that convenient. Some owners don't show up because they don't have the legal knowledge to be aware that that's something they can do and be aware of the legal arguments they can make. So in those cases, animals could get a lot of benefit out of having someone who can help the court, help the hearing officer figure out why did the animal do what they did and What is the best solution in this case under the law for this animal? I I suspect that we're going to see cap laws pass in more states in the future. Uh, Because again, these are laws that empirically work. We haven't seen negative blowback in Connecticut. And going back even even further to the United States government versus 53 pit bull dogs. Excuse me, approximately 53 pit bull dogs. Uh, (laughs) There was no negative outcome from that case. The federal court system is still chugging along merrily. Uh, There are things about federal courts that can and should work better. There are things about them that we can improve, but nothing about it has been made worse by courts being able to do something other than euthanize fighting dogs. The fact that courts can now look at the needs of fighting dogs and figure out whether they can be rehabilitated and if so, how to rehabilitate them, hasn't made court worse for anyone. And again, we know from looking at the Connecticut example that this isn't making court trials take longer. Um, So I think the fact that we aren't seeing a lot of negative pushback is going to be incredibly helpful for these laws passing. I think also it really speaks to something that attorneys and law students want. A lot of attorneys, well, as a profession, as attorneys, we are supposed to do public service work. We're supposed to give back to our communities. And part of the way we're supposed to do that is providing legal services for those who need it. Animals certainly need legal services. Humans who have animals need legal services. And a lot of attorneys aren't sure where to start with that. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be an animal lawyer professionally. I get to do this every day. There are other lawyers who don't, but who really would like to. And this is a way they can do that on a volunteer basis in a way that doesn't have to be their whole profession, that doesn't have to be their whole practice. Similarly, as a law student, getting courtroom experience is incredibly helpful. It helps you learn how to do the law. It helps you learn what kind of law you want to do. And, oh, wow, does it make you more employable once you graduate law school and go out to try to get a job. And this is a great opportunity for law students to do that. And working with animals is really delightful. Uh, They don't understand client fees. They don't necessarily understand what we're doing for them as advocates, but they wag their tails. (laughs) They're very happy to be in better places than they were before. And it's very gratifying as an attorney to be able to do that on their behalf. And this, I think, gets to one last thing that I want to talk about in terms of cap laws and cap advocates. Sometimes there's a discussion about how attorneys can do this kind of work if they can't transparently communicate with the animals. How can we represent animals in criminal cases if we can't sit down and speak to that animal and have the animal understand what we're saying? If the animal can't speak back to us and I want to unpack that. You know, first of all, I, I reject the notion that animals can't speak. Animals communicate all the time. We don't understand what they're saying. Animals communicate with each other. Animals communicate with...
1: Or don't listen. Right,
0: or don't listen. I think there are some cases where...
1: Sometimes we do understand. We can, we can
0: understand that an animal is unhappy, but that doesn't mean that they're always going to get yeah. what they want. Uh, I have some dogs who are unhappy. Well, I was
1: thinking when animals are in distress. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, there's a lot of cases where animals are in distress and it gets ignored. There are cases where animals want things or don't want things. They don't get what they want. I have dogs who, on the regular, uh, would like to have some human food, and that does not always get to happen for them. So when it comes to advocating for animals, first of all, I would reject the notion that there's a impermeable barrier between animal and human communication. Animals are very good at communicating. They communicate with each other. Uh, they can communicate with us to the degree that I think a lot of us who have experience with animals can, especially if it's an animal we're familiar with, a dog, you know, if we have dogs, cat, if we live with cats, birds, if we live with birds, etc. Specifically, if it's a particular animal, an individual animal that we have experience with, based on how that animal is acting, we can say, well, this animal seems happy or unhappy. This animal is in pain, not in pain. So part of it is, Are we listening? And part of it is, are we capable of understanding? But even beyond that, even acknowledging that animals are not going to be able to sit down across the table from you as an attorney and communicate with you in the same way that an adult human will, that's not unique to animals. As attorneys, we represent clients all the time who have trouble communicating with us. Attorneys represent nonverbal humans. We represent humans who, by virtue of age or infirmary, are not able to fully speak to their interests. As attorneys, putting the interests of our clients above our own interests is the core of what we do. And we're pretty good at doing it. As a profession, we've figured out ways to do that, and we've crafted ethical codes that require us to do that. And if we as attorneys are not able to speak to the interests of our clients or our quasi-clients in the case of Desmond's Advocates, if we can't do that, it's time for us to pack up all our law books and go home. Because if we can't do that, we can't be attorneys at all. Uh, So I don't buy the notion that the fact that animals can't communicate perfectly with us means we can't represent them. Of course we can. It just means it's difficult. If it wasn't difficult, we wouldn't need lawyers for any of the legal work we do. The fact that it is difficult is why we have attorneys. Um, And so I, I think that we need to embrace the difficulty of this. We need to acknowledge that it is real legal work, but that it's legal work that attorneys want to do, that volunteer law students want to do, and it's real legal work that helps. It helps animals. It helps the court. And in fact, it helps prosecution and defense attorneys. Looking at uh, some of the law review articles Jessica Rubin has published on this, this isn't just a matter of judges saying, this helps me get better decisions as a a judge. It's a matter of prosecutors saying, it helps me better understand what the animals need. And defense attorneys saying, this helps my client, the defendant, get better outcomes. It's better for my client to get an outcome that really looks at What they and their animals need rather than just going down a formula and saying, well, you committed this crime, pay this much money and go to jail for this long. I think there are scenarios here where everyone comes out ahead and the way they're able to do that, again, is attorneys being able and willing to do the hard work of representing the interests of an animal, uh, even though we can't perfectly speak with those animals.
1: Thank you for unpacking that. I mean, I know you, you do so much work on, um, on this legislation and it, it really, it really does just seem like there's not, there's no downsides. There's only good. Sides to these kind of laws, and um, I'm really glad that in Connecticut they're they're doing that work to connect or to collect uh, data on that on outcomes. Because I I've seen uh, Jessica speak on that some of the preliminary data in the past, and it was really interesting. And I'm really looking forward to that law review article when it comes out because I think that's another sort of exciting piece is to be able to say, you know, it's it's been here this many years and these are the outcomes we've seen, as you mentioned, having uh, qualitative and quantitative data speaking to that. So I think that should only help to spur enactment of similar laws in other states. So that's really cool. That's probably a good place to end this particular episode, David, unless you had anything more to add that we haven't covered.
0: I I think we're pretty good. As you know, I can talk about caps laws all day. But we've also been talking about capsules for three (laughs) hours now. So it's a good chunk of the day. We've done well. For those of you listening, I'm sure this won't end up being a three-hour podcast by the time our valiant producers uh, do the work of editing it down and making it sound all smooth. But that's what's going on behind the scenes. We're on hour three of (laughs) our podcast. We'll probably get faster at these as we go along, but we are delighted that you were joining us And that concludes our first episode of the first season of Animal Ethicus.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Cheers.